up to 75% of people who experience sexual harassment, in fact, do not report it. So you have this condition where it happens to people and they don't report it. The Me Too movement has added another layer to this, which is that more than half of workers in the United States, at least according to a pretty recent survey, are now feeling less comfortable talking about having relationships across gender, which is unfortunate, right? So you want to be able to have relationships across gender in the modern workplace. And then finally, I think the piece that doesn't always get brought into the conversation, but is incredibly important, is that in the U.S., at least one in four women and one in six men, one in two transgendered individuals experience sexual harassment or assault in their lifetimes. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders. Rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hey, if you're just tuning in to the Superhumans at Work podcast by Mindvalley, be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a review if you're a regular listener so that we can reach even more people with these amazing ideas on how to be a superhuman at work. Now, let's get started with today's episode, which is going to blow your mind. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Campbell, and welcome back to Superhumans at Work. The guest that I bring today is going to speak on a topic that you probably would have seen trending on social media. You might have heard yourself, someone you know that might have been affected by this movement. And if we look at the statistics, it is shocking to hear what has happened when we talk about the Me Too movement. There's a lot of shifts that have happened since this trending social experiment happened, but really it has brought to light so many of the issues that we need to discuss and conversations we need to have when it comes to men and women in the workplace. Sarah Beaulieu is an expert that's been featured in Harvard Business Review, the Boston Business Review, has written the book, Breaking the Silence Habit, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversation, especially in the Me Too movement. We want to bring these conversations forward on superhumans at work because the more that we bring these conversations forward, the better equipped we are to navigate what are things we need to consider, what are things we need to talk about, and how do we ensure that we have personal and professional journeys that are really supportive of everyone and not creating any cases of discrimination and really making sure that we are all empowered in the process. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show with me. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Now, Sarah, I feel like I actually made a mistake, but I did this intentionally. I called the Me Too movement as a social media movement, but I know it goes far beyond that. And I'd love for you to tell us what is it that happened and what has been your journey in bringing this conversation to light? So when I think about the Me Too movement is I think about it as a a way in which social media sparked off the work, decades of work that people have been doing on behalf of those who have experienced sexual abuse, sexual assault, or sexual harassment. And the moment of the Me Too movement happened when Alyssa Milano, a U.S. celebrity, made a tweet that had the hashtag Me Too. It was built off of this work that another activist had done, Tarana Burke, and it kind of exploded a really under-discussed topic and conversation that had just been existing without a lot of public dialogue. And so kind of the way that I think about it is that it really turned the volume up on a conversation that we weren't having. And what it also did is that it illustrated a very specific kind of conversation about sexual harassment and violence, which is the simply the fact of disclosing that it had happened. And so suddenly overnight, 
all of these people by by hashtagging me too on social media were able to share that they had me too personally been impacted by the issue of sexual harassment. And so I think it really started an unprecedented level of conversation about how this issue unfolds, particularly in the workplace. Mm. And it seems like, I don't know how it is in different parts of the world, but it seems like it was quite pronounced in America more than other countries. Is this because the idea of disclosure has different consequences? Like, why was it that the disclosure movement was something that was restricted in the past so much? There's a couple of things. So let me just give you a little bit broader context about sexual harassment in the workplace. So what we do know is that 25 to 85% of people experience sexual harassment in the workplace. And that's something that continues to be an issue. We also know that up to 75% of people who experience sexual harassment, in fact, do not report it. So you have this condition where it happens to people and they don't report it. The Me Too movement has added another layer to this, which is that more than half of workers in the United States, at least according to a pretty recent survey, are now feeling less comfortable talking about having relationships across gender, which is unfortunate, right? So you want to be able to have relationships across gender in the modern workplace. And then finally, I think the piece that doesn't always get brought into the conversation, but is incredibly important, is that in the U.S., at least one in four women and one in six men, one in two transgendered individuals experience sexual harassment or assault in their lifetimes. And so you have people who are coming to work having had these experiences outside of a professional context, and that's something that matters too. Mm. And so now that we've had this been brought to light, the disclosure was a, as you said, was a great movement to bring these conversations forward. Like there has been some positive aspects. You talked about some of the negative. What are some of the things that have changed and that we should all be aware of because this Me Too movement happened? There's finally a greater attention on the degree to which sexual harassment impacts people's ability to feel safe, respected, and therefore productive in the workplace. And so I think a lot of the times what I think about when I think about sexual harassment is that certainly feeling safe when you go to work is something that it should be a basic element of the work that we do, kind of regardless of your gender. And so I think depending on who you are, and I talked to people across gender about this topic a lot, for some people that was really a surprise. It was a surprise to learn that there were so many of their colleagues who were coming to work and not feeling safe for a variety of reasons. And then I think the other piece of this is that coming to work and knowing that people might be afraid of you, even if you haven't personally done something to make them afraid, is also like a new way of thinking about like intergender dynamics that is new as a part of this movement. For me as a man, like listening to this, it brings me to the question that I want to know, which is like, what are the things I can do to be the best version of myself when I show up to work? And I wanted to kind of isolate that question before I asked, what are the things that women can do? Or I don't know if this is actually something that should be split in a gender fashion. This is how ignorant I am about the topic. And so that's why I'm really curious. <laughs> well, it's, so it's funny, right? So I think, you know, I think part of the organizational response, right? And I think if you work inside of an organization, you might have experienced this in the wake of the Me Too movement is that the way that a lot of organizations and leaders responded is to double down on the rules. And I understand that, right? So I think it's like sexual harassment is wrong. This is sexual harassment. This is not sexual harassment. If you commit sexual harassment, we're going to hold you responsible. We're going to fire you, right? And so I think that in a lot of ways has been a way that organizations have responded. And I think that's great. That's that's step number one. But the challenge is, is that if what we want, right? So, you know, sort of for you to ask kind of like, what is it that I want to be a, a superhero in the workplace, 
right? It's like what you want is you want to be able to go to work, have a team that is diverse across gender and have people engage in healthy relationships, have safe and healthy boundaries, and like just kind of like generally get your work done where everybody feels safe and respected. And so when you think about it from that, it's like if that's the end goal, what are some of the skills that we're going to need in order to get there? You can start to reframe the conversation, right? So I think what's hard is if you hear a lot of rules and you walk out of this conversation and you think to yourself, well, am I doing those things? I thought I was doing those things. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but what if I'm not? And now nobody's going to tell me and then, or maybe they are going to tell me because like HR is going to pull me into the office and tell me I'm fired because I did something wrong. It's like, that's actually not the environment that you want is the environment that you want with your colleagues is a place where you're able to give and receive some feedback about behavior, boundaries, and relationships in the workplace. It's a place where you're going to want to be able to engage in some conversations that would help you better understand what makes those relationships feel safe when people feel like their boundaries are crossed. And so it's going to require us to all have a different kinds of conversations that we're used to having in the workplace. We're used to like not talking about those things and just assuming that everybody sees it the same way that we do. But that's not true when you have diversity in a team or in an organization. I remember a conversation I had with Dr. Timothy Clark a few weeks back. He talked about the levels of psychological safety in a workplace, and this was in a more broader context. But as I hear you speak here, it sounds like a lot of people, when it comes to the Me Too movement, instead of actually opening more conversation, opening challenging, knowing that it's not personal attack, but it's for the benefit of everybody, instead we kind of reverted. Even the people that might have been observers are feeling like they don't have the psychological safety to even have these conversations because they don't really understand what is the conversations of bringing it up or what is actually determined as sexual harassment or not. And again, you mentioned how the policies actually went and said double down. There must be at least what is the awareness we have? Because sometimes I feel that if you don't have the awareness, like you, you can't change the behavior. So what are some of the main things that we need to be aware of so that we make sure that these conversations happen and that the right things are being brought to the right attention? Well, there are a couple of things that I think would be important to be aware of. The first is understanding that incidents of sexual harassment are a result of a culture's inability to prevent that incident from taking place. So I think oftentimes when we hear about an incident of sexual harassment, we think about it as an incident that took place between two people. So either we need to like change the person who experienced it or we need to change the person who perpetrated it. And sexual harassment is actually, it is a community issue. And so when you think about it through a community and a team issue, so I'll give you an example. So like, let's say you're out at a work dinner and there's a junior colleague, you know, so you're more senior, there's a junior colleague and a very powerful client or customer vendor maybe at the table. And your job is out to kind of go make this vendor happy or this client or customer happy. And what you notice, you know, you sort of as this manager sitting across is that the customer's now flirting with the junior colleague and you're not sure, like, is this friendly? Is it not friendly? And continues to buy this person drinks, goes to sit next to her at dinner. And then you're seeing some like lower back touching happen. This is like something I hear a lot from kind of women. And so when you view that as like, well, that's an incident that's taking place between the two of them. None of my business. I'm going to just like, I don't know, like, maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know if it's wrong. It could be, but like, I don't know what to say or do or to intervene. 
But it's like, so what you can actually teach people is understanding the concept of helpful intervention, which is to understand that when you're seeing that, that's exactly the moment that you need to speak up. And there's a bunch of things that you can say. What you're doing is you're actually intervening on the culture to make the culture more safe. How do you make the table more safe? How do you make the workplace more safe? Because if you've got a customer who's active behaving this way in this situation, what are they doing behind closed doors? What are they doing once you've landed this customer? So I think that's, you know, when you think about a few of those examples, examples of understanding it as a community issue and then knowing how to intervene in a helpful way. Well, I'd love to pick at this example because when you describe this, I got the feeling of being in that situation. You described it so vividly and I'm like, oh my God, like I feel like as an observer, I would have some anxiety and then I'd be like, should I actually just pull her aside? Just be like, hey, I want to, I need to show you something like trying to pull her aside just being like, hey, is everything okay? But then like, I could imagine the awkwardness that I would feel. Yes. In the right. process, so like, there's so right. much emotion. There's around so this. much emotion, right? Well, and you you actually hit it on the on the head for the first one, right? So when you said is, when I think about this situation, it makes me feel uncomfortable, right? So the thing is, is that when you feel uncomfortable, the lesson here is leaning into the conversation instead of leaning out of the conversation. Oftentimes, when we feel uncomfortable, we view the discomfort as a sign that we should just keep our mouth shut because we're going to make it worse if we say something. We're going to make the discomfort worse. No, the discomfort has already happened. So you can let yourself off the hook. So everybody is already uncomfortable. And what you're choosing to do is whether are you choosing to lean a little bit into your own discomfort for the safety and health of everybody in your organization or on your team, or like that's what an uncomfortable conversation is, right? It's an uncomfortable conversation where you're willing to make yourself uncomfortable for the benefit of those around you. Because otherwise, you're leaving the most vulnerable people with all of the responsibility to be uncomfortable. I could just imagine the culture of trust that would be built within an organization if the leader would actually do that act where they step in, pull the junior aside, have that conversation. Talk about an act that I can just imagine would like zooming out 10,000, you're talking about an act that would build such a culture of trust, of like respect and would actually make people so loyal to the organization and to you in the process because you've had that moment where you actually stepped out and looked out for the people you work with. And so even as I speak, again, I'm kind of observing the observer now where I'm like, okay, there was a moment of discomfort, but I'm like, wait, what's the discomfort? It's just looking out for someone and putting them aside. The worst that could happen is the person might be like, oh no, I want this to happen. It's okay. And they would go back if it was nothing. So why do we feel? Why do we feel that way? Well, and that's also not your only option, right? You could spill a drink on the person. Like, So let's say, I mean, because what you're describing is a an interaction that would take some practice and also take some trust in your own abilities that you would be able to you know, speak those words in that particular moment, right? Because it's like if your first response is, oh, this makes me feel really anxious, a lot of people just will shut down after that. You know, so part of what I help teach people to do is like you want to be thinking about these kinds of scenarios before they happen. And you also want to know that the purpose of the intervention, it's not to save the day. This is a trap that I do see a lot of people fall into, right? It's like, so I'm going to have one conversation going to magically make all of this stuff go away. No, it's actually going to be a, a habit and a practice of conversations that's going to require and that you are not the hero. What makes bystander intervention work would be if everybody at the table did one small thing that would interrupt that behavior so that it would stop happening. You know, so let's say somebody spilled the drink, that then gives another person the window to go in and say, hey, I just wanted to see, like, are you okay? Did you want to switch seats with me? Like, it's a team sport, right? So contributing to safety and respect in an organization, it's a team sport. It's more fun when we do it together. It's more effective when we do it together. 
And the more people who are trained on doing it, then if that kind of situation arises, it's not just one person who feels like all of the responsibility is on them. It's really just we all have a little bit of responsibility and it works better when we do it together. That's really interesting, this scenario when you talk about a client working on the junior, like this seems like it would be one of the common cases that happen. And I love the idea that this is a case that you can start rehearsing, practicing, communicating with the team and saying like, hey, let's have a conversation about this because this could be typical. Now, I'd be curious to know, are there other typical scenarios that should be used as something to talk about as to practice these conversation and to allow us to kind of prepare? And what would be the top ones we could share with the people here? That's all I do is come up with this. <laughs> There's many hundreds of them, right? I'll give you two other common ones. So another common one would be, so let's go, we started with the Me Too movement. So let's say that you noticed that, you know, and maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was a few weeks ago that a colleague of yours on a public social media channel commented like a hashtag Me Too, right? So they essentially disclosed that they were somebody who had experienced, personally experienced sexual abuse or assault. So I hear this a lot from people in the workplace. So it's like, well, should I bring this up with them? Should I not bring it up with them? Or you're having, maybe you're having a conversation about a sexual harassment case and somebody kind of stands up and just walks away suddenly. And you then remember, oh gosh, it's like, is this something that has impacted them personally? Was I supposed to know that? Was I supposed to say something or not say something? So thinking about the way that we show up for people who've experienced sexual abuse or assault and like might feel really upset or uncomfortable or just sad or angry or just in any range of emotions and like may not want to be talking about it in the workplace. Kind of like, how do you show up for them? So I think that's another really important one. And then definitely to practice one around reporting. So kind of the joke that I always make is like nobody like puts an appointment on your calendar at like 10 a.m. on Thursday with like subject line to report an incident of sexual harassment. (laughs) So like you don't get time to prepare for these conversations. And if you manage people in an organization, and in some case, even if you don't manage people, is that you may be obligated to play some kind of formal role in those conversations. And so there's one, just understanding what your role is inside of an organization and what you might be obligated to do. So like you might have to go with this person to human resources, even if the person doesn't want to go. Those are the kinds of things that are currently unfolding inside of organizations. But regardless of what the policy is you want to have the skills and the words at your fingertips to be able to respond in a way that is humane and compassionate and not like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so overwhelmed now that you've told that to me. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> like, you know, or like, oh, I, I, I don't really know what to say. Or like, you know, or you suddenly start thinking, you, know, you start interrogating the person. I mean, I've just heard all the, like, I, you hear all the stories about the wrong things. And so you got to give people a chance to practice those kinds of conversations and practice them before somebody comes and tells you they've experienced sexual harassment or sexual assault. From what I take here is really think about the major scenarios, which you've actually outlined three major ones, and just see what it feels like. I viscerally felt the emotion through all the examples and then like started to think like, how should I respond? And even here, I find it interesting that you actually didn't tell us what is the specific answer, but I actually feel like now I want to specifically go have conversations in my company's culture about it. Is this the point? That is exactly the point, right? Is that, it, I mean, it would be nice. Like if I could write a book that would just give you a script for every situation that would come up, then that would be great. Or if I could just be a bug in your ear all the time. But it's like, we're not going to be able to address this issue unless every normal person in a workplace can have some level of literacy and skill in these conversations. And so part of it is developing your own skill. But the other part of it is being able to understand that different people have different experiences and backgrounds, and they're going to bring different things to the table. And so 
I mean, you think about it around the intervention example, there's lots of different styles of intervention. And so part of the benefit of workshopping these kinds of scenarios in a group is that you get to hear how your colleagues would respond. Because the other tactic that you can use in those situations, like if I like the way you would pull this person aside and you have the better relationship, I can just tap you and say, something's going on over there. Can you go see if she's okay? I don't know her. So the more that you have those kinds of conversations and understand what people's styles are, then it gives you an opportunity to not be surprised if somebody asks you about something that, you know, might be unusual to you. Like, well, why is this person asking me if I'm okay? Like having dinner with this person who's my boyfriend at the table. And, and, and you'd be like, oh, right. Yes, we had like, oh, I get it. Yes, no, actually I'm safe. Thank you very much. And so again, it's just, you've got to practice them and you've got to hear other people practice them so that you can all build your skills together. Mm. So we talked about what is it like and what are some of the actions and responses you can have as an observer based on various positions you have within the organization. Are there some thoughts that you think would be important to share with the people that could find themselves in the situation of possibly being the victim? Yes. So I think the one thing I always like to make clear is that if somebody, when I talk about the skill of an uncomfortable conversation and just being able to navigate these conversations in more meaningful and productive ways, I am not talking about when you are on the receiving end of sexual harassment or any other kind of discrimination. And so I think in in those cases, however you respond is perfectly normal and perfectly fine. You know, I think the other piece is that there are legitimate reasons why people do not want to report sexual harassment. There is fear of professional retaliation. There's fear of personal retaliation. Oftentimes there could be fear of your physical safety. So when you're thinking about what is it that you need to be safe, thinking about that there is help and support available to you. There are options for reporting within organizations. There are options for seeking help or advice on what you want to do next. And so, again, it's like, you know, some people just want the behavior to stop and go back to work. Some people want to hold the person who has committed these kinds of acts against them responsible and might want to follow more of like a legal route, which would include documenting what happened to you and, you know, kind of consulting with somebody externally. But some people want to just take some time and figure out and process and like, what does it mean to me? And all of those responses are perfectly normal. And so I think the thing that I would say to people who experience sexual harassment is that there are more people out there who are waiting to be activated as your helper than you would probably imagine. And just because there's silence doesn't always mean that that silence is on the side of the perpetrator. And so the more we can empower people to help speak up, the safer that we can make our workplaces for everyone. I love it. And I think the final one that I'd love to just isolate here is we talked about the observer, the person that would be the receiver. What about the person that is the harasser? I mean, right now, it almost seems like we're taking all actions here, except giving prescription to the person who's the harasser. But then is it a question of awareness? Is it a question of caring? Is it there's nothing to do about this person? Like, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> so perpetrators of sexual harassment are not my target audience. <laughs> so they're, they're not the people that I've spent the most time talking to and learning about. But what I think I would say is to go back to this idea that sexual harassment is a byproduct of our community and it's a byproduct of silence. And so when I think about, you know, and I personally have had experience not just with sexual harassment, but with sexual abuse and assault as well. And so when I think about the habits and patterns of silence that we have, if we can change those and we can change the kinds of conversations that we have, we're going to make it easier for people to step forward and to seek the help and support that they need. And we are going to send a message to perpetrators that their behavior is not welcome here. And so the earlier that you are able to intervene on a spectrum of behavior, the less likely that person is going to be able to cause harm. 
So thinking about how we can have more uncomfortable conversations earlier and more often is really the key to addressing perpetrators. So like if I knew why some people chose to abuse power in unhealthy ways, then we wouldn't have to do this work, would we? I agree. Sarah, thank you so much for coming and sharing all these ideas. I mean, for everybody listening here, you saw that there are some specific things that we can do based on the role that we play as the observer or the person in the middle of the sexual assault. Having these conversations, practicing these scenarios, making sure that it's okay to have the conversation. The breaking of the silence is one of the biggest steps we can take to make sure that these incidents do not happen in the future. And so make sure that you are being able to show up as someone that provides safety, that provides a conversation and a culture that makes it so that people feel that it's okay to speak about these things, address these things, and ensure that they don't happen again. It's not a one-off conversation, as Sarah (laughs) mentioned earlier, that you have and it fixes the entire problem. It's something that you can actively have conversations about. It's something that you can build within your culture of ensuring that these incidents do not happen. We support each other. We build a culture that we are all there for each other with more trust. And you will notice that you'll bring a lot more productivity and loyalty in the process because you're actually building an incredible culture with more diversity, more balance, and everybody feels that everybody's got each other's back. And this is just a beautiful way to move forward when you're part of an organization that is focused on one thing, making a beautiful impact in the world. So let's try to make sure that we have the best culture possible so we don't have to have these types of incidents that should not even exist in the first place. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this important conversation. And Sarah, thank you so much for bringing this forward with us as well. Thank you for having me. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.